Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Amen, amen. Good morning, North Bible Church. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Just got back uh, a week ago from Ohio, a little vacation time with um, some of our family and friends back in Ohio. Got a chance to hang out with our son a little bit who's been uh, living back there. He's staying there and living there and also connecting with some of our Ohio friends. So it was good to be with them, but it's good to be back here as well. And we're going to take some other days off throughout the month just to uh, explore and enjoy some of what Arizona has to offer too. Some of you are thinking you're nuts because it's going to be 150, but that's okay. Um, We're we're going to have a great time anyways, but it's good to be with you. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Chad Allen. I'm lead pastor here at North Bible Church, and uh, just thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Daniel. Appreciate that. And I uh, hope you get a chance to meet and connect at some point while you are here. Uh, one thing I want to say is I just want to thank uh, Brett and Wes for teaching the last couple weeks. Um, you guys got to understand something. It is good to be a church that has more than one person who can teach the Word of God. Amen. Like, it's so good to have other people capable of teaching God's Word. So um, we're going to hear more from those guys over, over the time. But so grateful for Wes and Brent teaching the Word of God. Um, that was good stuff. All right, we just sang a minute ago about the power of Christ. The, the Jesus' power has the power to break chains, right? Uh, nothing limits Christ's power. But there are aspects of our life that can limit access to Christ's power. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I want you to think about a time. Can you think of a time in your life where you experience Christ's power at work in you or through you, especially in the area of temptation or an area that you struggle with, something like that, okay? And so uh, think, think about that for a second, about how you've experienced Christ's power. I'll never forget, I think, the first time I really experienced uh, God's power um, accessed and, and, and working in my life. Uh, when I came to faith in Jesus, I was a teenager, all right? So 13, 14 years old, uh, raging hormones, you know, living in Central Valley, California, trying to figure out this new relationship with God. And I lived out on about a, a couple acres of almonds in Central Valley, California at the time, And the ranch house next to us sold, and a juvenile girls' group home moved in next door. Yeah, try, like, I'm sure my parents were, like, losing their mind, right? They got their teenage son now living next to six to eight, let's just say mischievous young ladies, okay? In the country with a lot of land. Like, this, this is not a good scenario that's going on right here. And, and honestly, like, uh, there were multiple opportunities where I was invited to um, interact with these young ladies uh, in, in, in the property around us and, and to go out and hook up with them and all sorts of stuff. And as a teenage young boy, like, my flesh was like, yeah, this is, this, I think this is heaven on earth. I'm like, who else has this, right? But, like, the power of God arrested my heart, arrested my life, and, and, and came online. And all of a sudden, there was just this like holy fear that set in, this, this huge red flag, this huge check in the spirit, like, I can't do this. Like, like this, is, this is not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for my family. And so God led my victory over saying no to all of those invitations just by his sheer power. It was just one of the earliest moments of my life where I can remember God's power kept me 
I think, from, from really going down a road that would have been so detrimental. Now, I've got a lot of other stories of where God's power was accessible and, and I didn't access it, but that was one of the first moments I realized God was there in his power to help me. What about you? When you look over your life, can you think of times where God's power helped you to say no to temptation, to, to press through difficult times, to, to overcome addictions, to, to forgive someone who in your human ability you had no power to forgive? Like, when have you had times where you've experienced God's power at work in your life? Now, what can limit our experience of God's power? What can limit our access and the ability to access that power of God in our lives is lives of regular disobedience and unrepentant sin. And so what I want to focus on today as we continue in this series through the book of Joshua is the power of God is experienced more regularly in our lives when we are repentant and obedient. I want to say that again. That the power of God is experienced more regularly in our lives when we are repentant and obedient. And so as we continue in this book of Joshua through the series for the summer, I think we're going to see some uh, helpful observations that will support that reality. Let's pray and dive in. Father, thank you so much uh, for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your power that is available to us as followers of Christ who have the very Holy Spirit of the living God living in us, the power of God dwelling in us. But Lord, you do not impose your will over our lives and our hearts. You make it available So I pray specifically that today as we see some examples in your word of what unrepentant sin and of what disobedience can do to limit that power, that you would give us eyes to see what you want us to see today, ears to hear what you want us to hear today, hearts to respond to what you impress on our heart today. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all said Amen. All right, we're in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua 8. A couple things. I hope you've been reading along. Uh, how many of you just by chance already read Joshua 7 and 8? I know some of you already did. We've invited you to read the verses leading into the week so they make more sense. Uh, if that's new information to you, uh, we've got a bookmark out in the foyer that kind of gives you some dates. Those dates are getting less and less as we're getting toward fall. Also, uh, I hope that you have a Bible that you can touch, read, open, highlight, write, or a Bible app that you interact with on a regular basis. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free as a gift. All right, uh, happy July. Uh, there's one in the guest reception area uh, for you to just take as a gift if you don't happen to have a Bible, so make sure you stop and get that. But as we dive into Joshua 7 and 8, we're going to see six helpful observations to support this reality that the power of God is experienced more regularly in our lives when we're repentant and obedient. Now, the first thing we have to do is kind of frame it in with a command. The first observation is a command, and this command came from what uh, Pastor West talked about last week. Because he was in Joshua chapter 6, where here, here's, here's this group, this, this nation, Israel, who God rescued from slavery in Egypt, took through the wilderness. They, they turned a one-week trip into 40 years. That, that takes talent, right? <laughs> to turn a week-long trip into 40 years through disobedience and discontentment with God, right? Disobedience. And then after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, God has a, has a change of command from Moses to Joshua. And now Joshua is tasked with taking this new generation of Israelites into this land that was promised to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, and all of his descendants. 
And so we saw a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. Uh, we see the preparation of the people when it comes to the, the prioritization of God and worship before they go into the land and start to begin its conquest of the land. And last week we saw the very first city that they encountered, this fortified city of Jericho, impossible to, to really take. We saw the walls come down because they obeyed God and followed his very, very unorthodox instructions of how he wanted them to take that city. But in that moment, we see in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, some specific commands that God gave to the Israelites. He said, And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the devoted, the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them to take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." So what's happening here? What we're seeing here is the principle of first fruits. As you study the Bible, you will see over and over again that the first and the best belongs to the Lord. Like that's like, like our income. For them, it was the harvest, it was the flocks, that, that was their income source, right? And, and the resources they received. The first of that and the best of that were devoted to the Lord. And so the same is true for us. Our income, our resources, the first of that is devoted to God. It belongs to him. We just give it back to him to acknowledge our dependence on him and also as a, as a, a gesture of gratitude for his provision in our life, right? And so we want to give God first. Some of you, um, that's your approach to your time with the Lord. You wake up and you go, <laughs> maybe, maybe hopefully you brush your teeth first, right? You splash on some water, whatever, and then you find your Bible and you spend time with the Lord first before the rest of your day takes place. That's what some of, some of you do. And so um, there's this first fruit principle. New land, new territory, new leader, new generation. This is the very first city they encounter. Guess what it is? It's a first fruit unto the Lord. This is the first city to be conquered, so it's absolutely God's. It's devoted to him. And he said it's devoted to destruction. Because as you study the history of the Canaanites, you see such horrific, sinful, grotesque practices. Uh, the sexual perversion, the prostitution that was used in the worship of the, their false deities. You see the fact that they even would sacrifice their own children to these false deities. And so God said, there aren't innocent people here, and I'm going to devote this city, except for Rahab, right? She was a woman who came to faith. There's a whole backstory there. It's a beautiful story. If you're not familiar with it, we've, we've touched on it several times in the last several weeks. But other than Rahab, who came to faith and, and protected the spies that came, everybody else is devoted to destruction. Everything else is devoted to destruction. This is the first fruit unto the Lord. Don't take it. It belongs to me. And all of the gold and the bronze and silver, we're going to take that, we're going to put it in the treasury, and that belongs to the Lord, and he's going to use it for his service down the road. That was the command that we see. And so the walls of Jericho were brought down by the Lord. Jericho was destroyed, and Joshua at that point was thinking, this is going to be a series of undefeated conquest, right? 
That was the command. The second observation, more to do with our text in Joshua 7, is that we see a failure. Look at Joshua 7.1. It says, but, don't you, don't you hate that word? It's either going to be really good afterwards or really bad, right? But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. All was going according to plan with Jericho, except for one little tiny incident. A man named Achan took some of that which he shouldn't have taken. He took some of that which was devoted to the Lord. And uh, ironically, his name Achan in the Hebrew means troubler. Like, like what, I'm thinking, parents name their kids for usually characteristics they saw or they, they want to see. So this kid was named troubler out of the gate. Like, you just wonder what was up with this kid, you know? But down the road, we see him now causing trouble for his fellow Israelites. And what's interesting here is the reminder that God is dealing with his people as a whole. Like in our Western mindset, our very hyper-individualistic mindset here in West America, we have a hard time understanding this. It says, Achan's the one that messed up. But all of Israel has to pay a price? Like how is that fair, right? He, he's not dealing with a group of people. We, we, there's estimations of one to three million people now in this camp. One guy makes the entire group suffer. God is dealing with his people as a whole, not as a bunch of individuals at this point. And so if you've ever been part of the military, or if you've ever been part of sports teams, you get that, right? One for all, all for one, all that kind of stuff, that you're only as strong as your weakest link, that, that when one part of the platoon or one part of the team doesn't do their job, the rest of the team suffers. Like, you get it if you have that context. Just, just blow that up to a bigger level here and go, that's what's happening. One guy messed up, but it's part of the whole nation. If one part of your body has cancer, guess what? Your whole body has cancer, right? It's, it's I have cancer, not like, oh, just my pinky. It's like, no, it's the whole part. So God's dealing with his people as a whole here. And Israel's weakest member in this moment was Achan, which he took that which was God's, and so he disobeyed. But in essence, he also stole from God. And his failure was applied to all of Israel. You know, we, we see similar dynamics with the one represents the all when we expand our theology to a wider level. For example, when Adam and Eve were created, <laughs> one sinned, then two sinned, and now all of humanity is infected with sin, with the sin nature. Yet at the same time, we see one man, God in the flesh, die on the cross, raised from the grave, and because of one man here, the second Adam is a theological term, now all of humanity has access to forgiveness and healing, hope, and repair with God. And so this is not a foreign concept. We need to become more comfortable with that. And so when we think about our sin, one sin of mine can impact many people. One sin of a person in a church can impact the entire church. No individual Christian can sin without it affecting the whole church. We have a collective purity. We have a collective witness. The potency of the church community 
depends on the victorious life of every believer within the community. This is an all-for-one, one-for-all mindset spiritually. And so the testimony of our church and our community, the testimony of our church around the world, depends on the victorious life of every man and woman who calls this church home. That should motivate us to strengthen each other through prayer, through encouragement, through support, sometimes through gentle, loving confrontation when we're sinning. And so we need to be alert to the ripple effects of our failures or potential failures on the church as a whole, not just our own lives. That was one of the lessons we see here with Achan and in Achan's failure as it affected others. So we saw a command, we see a failure, now we see a consequence. What happens because of Achan's failure? Look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. You see these two letters, A-I. Some say it's A-I, some say it's, you know, it's just the most appropriate pronunciation is I which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up, spied it out, I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack, I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of I, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabrim and struck them at the desert. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua, in a total sign of grief, right, and despair, tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. And the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. What that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Does it start to sound like an echo of stuff you've read before? Right? O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us uh, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, key verse right here, uh, all chapter 7. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs. Right? That's a sign of running, right? They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Can you feel the weight of those words that God was speaking to Joshua? Verse 13, get up, consecrate the people, and say Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you've taken away the devoted things from among you. This is a tragic moment for the life of Israel. 
They have all these promises. They believe God's going to give them the land he's promised. The first encounter they have with Jericho is this amazing success. Let's just go on to the next thing. And all of a sudden, a smaller group, less intimidating than Jericho, defeats them. And it says their hearts melted. This is the language that was used of all the other people when they heard what God was doing through his people. Now the Israelites, their hearts melted. They were discouraged. They were fearful. They were defeated because of what just happened. And they don't know why. And so Joshua's losing his mind. He has a tantrum tantrum, falls before the ark of God, says, man, it was better in the wilderness. It was better in Egypt than we show up to this land of milk and honey and, and can't do what you said we were going to do. And God just takes really a firm stance. It's like, get up. Here's the problem. You've got sin in the camp. There is sin in the camp, and that which was devoted to me, which was devoted to destruction, has been stolen, has been taken. There's been lies. It's in your midst. It's hidden. That's why you lost the battle. And until you get rid of the devoted things, until you make it right, until there's repentance and repair, until there's obedience, I'm not going to be with you. You're not going to win any more cities. You're going to turn your back to every enemy you encounter. You've got to fix this. And so we see right here, as I said, there's this consequence, which was the defeat that they experienced. Here's what's interesting. The defeat of the people of Israel didn't come from the outside. It came from the inside. Something was wrong in the camp, in the people that led to the loss. You know, the loss is a result, a consequence of sin in the camp. When there is unrepentant sin, there will be lost ground in our lives. There will be lost ground with our families, and there will be lost ground in our relationships, and there will be lost ground in the church when we decide we're just going to live chronically disobedient lives with unrepentant sin, never making it right. We're not, how, do we really expect God to bless that kind of approach? For God to bless disobedience? For God to bless unrepentant sin? That'd be crazy. And so we look at verse 12 where God says, it's because you have devoted items for destruction in your midst. God did not fail the nation. The nation failed God. There's a couple other nuances I want to tap on in this, in this moment of consequence that I think we need to make sure we, we observe. One, did you notice that Joshua listened to his scouts rather than going to God in prayer? See what happened? I'm going to send some scouts to I. They're going to check it out. The scouts check it out. They come back like, piece of cake. Man, with what we just did with Jericho, like, don't send very many people. Ah, just take a few thousand guys. We got this. You know, Team Israel, you know, let's go. Let's go take this place out. Everyone else going to be, we'll be back before lunch. Did he pray? Did he ask the Lord for direction? Like part of me wonders, what would have happened if before Joshua did that, he said, Lord, we're about to go after I. Do I need to hear from you? Is there anything I need to know? Because what if at that point God would have said, oh, don't even try. There's sin in the camp. Self-reliance really hurts us, doesn't it? We're to be God-dependent people. Our prayer life, our posture, depending on God more than self. This pride came online. It's so weird. When you think about our life, fear makes your enemies seem bigger than they really are. But pride makes your enemies 
seem smaller than they really are. How many of you have been hurt by sinful decisions because you underestimated that sin or the impact of that sin, right? And so we see pride at work here. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and arrogance or a haughty spirit before the fall. See, overconfidence makes us vulnerable to sin. And so we see that take place. Also, notice that Joshua's primary concern was not their loss, but God's glory. Did you catch that? As he's having this kind of fit before God, and he's unpacking all of that he's you know, feeling and thinking and the fears, he comes to this place where he says, man, they're going to cut our name out, but more importantly, what are you going to do for your great name? He's recognizing that as word gets out that Israel is defeated by I, that God isn't as big as all the other nations have been hearing. And that somehow God's glory was going to be diminished. I, I find that fascinating. That was a good refresher for me to, to see in my study. That when we sin, our, the, the, the primary concern of our heart shouldn't be whether we get caught. It shouldn't be how it impacts our life. Shouldn't be even be how it impacts the lives of others. Those are all important to wrestle with. But the greatest primary focus should be how is my sin going to take away from the glory of God? Your friends know that you're a follower of Christ. Your family knows that you're a follower of Christ. People know that you belong to a Bible teaching church who, who wants to glorify Christ. But if you're living in unrepentant sin and a chronic life of disobedience, how is God getting glory from that lifestyle? That, that should be a renewed, refreshed concern. Like, how is my life glorifying God and making Christ shine? Like, he doesn't need us to glorify himself. But if we're going to say that we're followers, if we're going to say that we're faithful to Christ, our lives should help bring glory to God, not a bad reputation to God. And some of us have been there. Some of your friends and family are there where they go, the reason I don't follow Christ is, and they fill in the blank with someone who's a professing Christian who's done something horrific, right? And they're a hypocrite, or they're doing this, and they're doing that and the other, and God can't obviously be real, or they're really not as serious about the faith as they think they are because Joshua was concerned about God's great name. When we talk about sin, we should be concerned about God's great name in our sin. You know, a big lesson about the consequences of the defeat of I showed that what mattered most is the help of God. It was God who defeated Jericho. They just came in and cleaned up. It was God who was going to defeat everyone else as well. Without God's help, they had no hope. Let me ask you a question. What would your life be like if God removed his hand from your life? If God removed his provision? If God removed his protection? If God removed his blessings? If God removed his power from your life? What would your life be like? That terrifies me. Think about the old you before you knew Jesus. And just times that by a thousand, right? Right? Here's another question. Would you even know if God removed his hand from your life? Like, like what would be the differences? Like, that, that's a great lunch question for later, right? Talk about a light conversation over food. Like, how would we know 
if God's hand was removed from our life? What would we be experience if all of a sudden the power of God was just sucked out of our life and we were just left to ourselves? What would our life look like? That's a huge lesson that we see in the consequences. I never want to live without the power of God in my life. I know what's waiting for me the day I go there. We all need to have that caution in our spirits. So we saw this command. We see a failure. We see a consequence. And now we see a confession. All of this is helping us continue to understand, right, that the power of God is experienced more regularly in our lives when we repent and when we're obedient. And all all that's going to happen on the other side of confession. Look at Joshua 7, verses 14 through 27. This is a fascinating moment. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot, we'll come back to that, shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarathites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achim, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. I mean, he was picked, he was selected, he was singled out. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. I just want to pause there to make sure we understand what just happened. God, just by through the process of elimination, singled out Achan out of everybody. Million to two million people. All right, got 12 tribes. Bring up forward. We're going to select. All right. Uh, we got the tribe of Judah. Okay, let's bring Boom, boom, boom. If you're Achan, at what point do you start to sweat? Like, look, let's be honest. We all have sin natures. We've all had times in our lives where we, you know, we, we lied, we stole, we, we, we manipulated, whatever it was. And there were times we look back and remember like, oh, this is about to be exposed. My parents found out you know, or my boss found out, or whatever it is, and you start to go, you get that feeling, right, that pit in your stomach. At what point did Achan go, uh, uh-oh. <laughs> and how did, how did God choose this? He chose by lot. Um, we're not told exactly what happened, but when you look at the whole of Scripture, right, we, look at, we studied the Bible as a whole, there's these special tools called the Urim and the Thummim. And uh, we believe there might have been like two rocks that had two different colored sides on them. And they were kept in one spot. They were kept in the breastplate of the high priest of the whole nation. And they were brought out at special times to get specific divine direction from God. So a lot of times when you see in the Bible that they went by lot or they chose or they were trying to figure it out, basically the high priest would be approached, he'd pull out the Urim and the Thummim, and they would place them, roll them if you will, and they would direct Yes, no, this direction, that direction. And through process of elimination or direct yes or no, God would at times 
divinely lead his nation through these tools, the Urim and the Thummim. And we believe this is what was happening here, and Achan is singled out. What happens? Look at verse 20. Achan's confession. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and this is what I did. And he unpacks the details, right? Verse 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Let's just pause there. He gives the details of what he did. You know what's interesting? If you read that a couple times, you should identify a pattern that hasn't changed since just after creation. Achan said, I saw something. I desired to long for it and coveted it. So I took it, and then I had to go into hiding with it. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the garden. What happened with Eve? It says she saw that the fruit was good. She desired it. And then she took it and ate and gave to Adam who was with her. And then right after they did that, God came to the garden. What was their first response? They what? Hid. They hid. Not much has changed, huh? Tomorrow morning you might wake up and have a bad day, a vulnerable day. You might sin. You know what you're going to do? You're going to see something. You're going to desire it, covet it. It's going to poke at your discontentment, your lust, your longings. You're going to indulge, take, steal, participate, whatever it looks like, and then you're going to try to cover it up. That's what I'm going to do. That's what you're going to do because that's the pattern. Like We should, we should have figured it out by right, right now. That's why we say a lot of times we go bad when we're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people doing the wrong thing. Because if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people doing the wrong thing, you're going to see something that you shouldn't see. That's going to entice you. That's going to tempt you. And then you're going to crave it and long for it and want it and covet it. And then you're going to take it. And once you do, all of a sudden that's shame. So that's what the devil does. The devil baits the hook. We all have specific bait, right? The way he baits my hook is not the way he baits your hook. He baits it with where, where you're weak and where you're vulnerable. He wiggles that thing in front of you. And once you bite and he got you, then the shame, how, look at you. See, God doesn't love you. You call yourself a Christian. Oh, you're, you go to church. Oh, you want to pray now, do you? Because how could you possibly approach God? Look at the lies, the shame come in. Same pattern. Achan is just saying, this is what I did. It's what we all do. It's what Adam and Eve did. And then we see a tragedy happen. Look at verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took them out to the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua and all Israel with, took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. 
And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Through a process of elimination, the guilty party was identified. The guilty party was confronted. Achan confessed. You know what's so sad about this moment, too? Is Achan didn't really take a lot. He took a bougie cloak. He took, when you, when you look at the shekels, shekels is a weight. 200 shekels is about five pounds of silver. The, the 50 shekels of gold, the little bar, it's like, it's like a pound and a half. He didn't really take a lot. And he buried it, but it cost a lot. How many of you have learned that lesson, that a little sin can cost a lot? A phrase that has helped me for years is that you can spend years and decades building a good reputation and lose it in seconds. It just takes one decision. It just takes one moment. And that just puts the fear of God in me. He didn't really take a lot, but it cost, it cost an entire nation to have their hearts melt and feel defeated. 36 soldiers lost their lives. They didn't have to. And then, his own family. Which, by the way, th- th- we struggle. Like, let's talk about this. I really like what Pastor West said last week. He said something to the effect of, when we look at you know, God's call to destroy an entire city, devoted to destruction. Like, we wrestle with that. We struggle with that. There's no satisfying answer. And he said, basically, I'm not comfortable with what I'm seeing here, but I am comfortable with trusting God who knows a lot more than I do. And we can kind of come at it. We can, get, we can move the ball as far as understanding. Like, look, if you've got one cancer cell in your entire body, are you okay with that? Ah, leave it alone. It'll be fine. No. Like, get that thing out. Like, the greatest news for someone with cancer is, like, clean report, right? You don't want to hear, like, well, we got most of it. Well, there's still a little bit. So if we as sinful people don't want one bad cancer cell that can threaten our physical health, why would a holy God want one moral, spiritual cancer cell among his people for their spiritual health? He says we've got to get rid of it. So God was using the nation of Israel like a, like a chemo on the land of Canaan. And he's using this moment as kind of a, a chemo of correction to his people. So you are a holy people following a holy God. There can be no sin. And what we're seeing here is, again, new land, new people, new leader. This is similar to what we saw when the church was born in the book of Acts chapter 5, Right? All these, man, everyone had everything in common. It was going great. And then here comes along this two couple, there's one couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They just lied. They didn't even have to, by the way. They just wanted to look good. They wanted to impress people, so they lied. What did God do? What did God do? He took their life. Because the way you start the journey, if you're off just one degree, you're going to off, be off somewhere completely different. And as the people came into Jericho, God's going, there's no room for error to be off one degree as my people in this new land. I'm going to purge the sin among you. It was severe. It was a severe 
punishment because God wanted his people to be this way. The early church, this is where we're going. Oh, Ananias and Sapphira, one degree. Correction. I don't know about you, if I watched all that happen down to Aiken, the next time I saw and coveted, I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. I saw what went down. But we struggle with this. Some people lost their lives. By the way, it's very tempting to think like, well, it's unfortunate innocent people had to die. Who's, who's, who's saying these people were innocent? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of the fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. We have a lot of room to realize that Achan's family was pretty complicit in what happened. Probably helped bury it. They knew about it. They were aware. It wasn't like, what's this bump under our tent, you know? And they also were part of the consequences. You know, one way that we can, that can help us avoid sin is the regret that we feel after sin. Let's feel it before we sin. <laughs> Achan regretted it, but what if he would have been reminded of that regret before he sinned? I told you a story about a time in my life that I felt God's power deliver me and give me victory. There was another moment in my life, I remember it very clear, where I felt the opposite. I was a young man in my 20s, I was new in ministry, pretty young in ministry. I was serving at a church in California. And, uh, you know, as a young guy trying to make ends meet, wasn't doing very well. When I was a child, I um, grew up struggling with desire to take things that weren't mine and, and, and to steal. And as I grew in Christ, uh, that was really eradicated from my life. I hadn't taken something that didn't belong to me in years and years and years. But one day I was in the church office, and I walked by another pastor's office. His name was Lance. And I noticed on Lance's desk was a $5 bill. I had no money. I was hungry. I wanted lunch. I justified it in my brain because that's what we do. I'll just borrow this and then put it back before he knows or whatever. And I remember walking into Lance's office. I saw something. I wanted it. I, what's the next step? Took it. I hid, right? I didn't have like, hey, everybody. I took five bucks from Lance. I'm just going to go buy lunch. Put that thing in my pocket. I want to tell you, the second that $5, even though I took those $5 and I went down and converted them into some fish tacos at the local place, that five bucks haunted me for days and days and days and days. I literally felt emptied of the power of God in my life. Disqualified. Why, why am I even doing ministry if this is what I've done? I haven't done this in years embarrassed, ashamed. Who are you going to tell that to? Who are you going to be that transparent with? And I knew God wanted me to confess it. And so I did the typical thing we do as believers. I said, God, I'm so sorry. I know that was a sin. Would you forgive me? And of course, I know that God's forgiveness was applied to my life, but I know he wanted to do more. It just so happened the next week, I went on a spiritual retreat. At that retreat, there was a time of worship, and there was this time of like, you have sin in your life, that you probably need to repent of and give it to God. I'm like, oh, crud. We have some friends up here. By the way, I didn't know any of them. They were all strangers. They're just available to pray with. If you want to get that off your chest. My heart's beating. I feel God's finger just poking me in the chest. You ever had that feeling? And during that worship set and that prayer time, 
I got out of my chair. I went to this man, never met him before in my life. I said, here's what happened. I shared. He prayed with me and encouraged me and says, you just need to respond to whatever the Lord tells you to do next. And as I sat down, I knew what the Lord wanted me to do next. I was forgiven by God, but I needed to tell Lance. So I got back from that retreat, and that Monday I went into the office with Lance, said, hey, Lance, I need to talk to you for a second. I explained to him what happened, and I gave him a $10 bill back. <laughs> and he was so dismissive. He was like, all right, thanks for sharing me. You know, I forgive you. Game on. But it was a time in my life I remember being emptied of the power and feeling the effects of my sin. But once I repented, I never did that again. Like I felt all that come back online. Peace, hope, strength, joy, all come back online. And so as you hear me today, I'm just going to be honest, I'm, I'm going I'm to put a bookmark. <laughs> There's a lot more I can teach on. I've got a lot more. I'm just going to bookmark that. One of two things is about to happen with the rest of this teaching section. I'm either just going to push it into next week or check your North Bible Church inbox. I might send you a small mini sermon on video <laughs> to just watch during the week or something, and you can watch the rest. One of those two things will happen. But I just want to land this plane for us a little bit and ask you these questions. Is there an area of your life right now where you're needing victory? And as you evaluate your life, as you evaluate all that you've heard today, is there a need in your life right now for confession and repentance before the Lord and to come back to a place of obedience? I'm going to invite the worship team to join me. And I want us to just come into this moment now and prepare our hearts. There's a lot more we can talk about, but I'm just sensing that this, this is a good place for us to stop. This, this understanding that the power of God is going to be experienced more regularly in our lives when we're repentant and obedient is no joke. If you are living in lives that are chronically disobedient, I'm not talking, we're always going to disobey to some level. I'm not talking about you're disobeying, you, don't, you just don't care. And there's just unrepentant sin. Like you're living in, in, in blatant sin before God, you know, you're probably still going to experience some common grace and some common blessings that God's allowing you to have. But the question is, what are you missing out on? What power of God, what blessing of God are you missing out on because you've chose disobedience and unrepentance rather than obedience and repentance? What's waiting for you on the other side? We're going to talk more about that next time because Israel goes back to I after a cleansed heart, it's a different story. That's what I want for me, that's what I want for you. That when we repent and refresh our obedience, we start to experience the victories in our life that God has for us on the other side. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're just going to spend some time preparing our heart before the Lord, the team's going to lead us. Uh, we're going to get a little creative today. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to stand. We have several tables around the room. And at each table are several stations on each table. There's pens and there's pieces of paper. I want to tell you about this paper. It's kind of neat. It's dissolving paper. And so you have an opportunity, and I, and I invite all of you to engage. All of us probably have something that we can do to, to go to one of these tables. <clears throat> and 
you know, before you get there, just, just lay this before the Lord. Is there something I need to repent of? Is there something I need to confess to the Lord? And write it down. There's something that happens when you speak it or write it and, and are, get it from out of hiding. And write it down. You can put initials. You don't have to like put, you know, you don't have to spell it if you don't want to. You can fold it up if you're like, I don't want to put it there. And, someone's, and if you take that paper and put it in the little bowl of water, it'll dissolve. And I want that dissolving to remind you that in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been covered. His forgiveness is available. And as you think about that paper dissolving, whether you watch it or whether you go back to your seat, just remind you that I've confessed that to the Lord. I've offloaded that. And now I just need to walk in obedience. I need to walk in my repentance and experience the victories God has for me. But we're giving you an opportunity to do something tangible and real and literal to help you with that process. And so I invite you to stand with me right now. Would you just stand? I'm going to pray. And then I just invite you to enter this moment. Father, thank you so much for the cautions that we just read, the warnings that are there. Thank you even for the challenging text. Lord, we, we don't understand why you do all that you do. We surrender trust to you when it comes to severe punishment and judgment. Lord, uh, you're not evil, we are. <laughs> you're not sinful, we are. You don't owe us a debt or an explanation. We owe you a debt. We owe you an explanation. You are holy. You are righteous. And Father, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we have made decisions that have impacted the glory of your name in the eyes and minds of others. Father, would you look down upon us now and would you take this moment as a, as a moment from our heart that we soberly, seriously repent of our sin, our sinful attitudes, our sinful words, our sinful actions, our sinful choices, and just refresh our obedience, refresh our repentance before you. May this moment be pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. The team's going to lead us, and I encourage you to take this time to pray, process, and then step out when you're ready and just do business with God. If, if at the end of the service you also need someone to pray with, we're going to have some friends over here on the right that are just available to pray with you if you just need some extra support and backup. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, like this God that you're hearing about so fascinating and curious, you want to find out more, come talk to myself or one of us afterwards about what it means to have a relationship with Christ and we'd like to tell you more. But right now, just spend some time coming before the Lord and responding as He leads you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.